0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. It's weird to say this, but good evening. And this is really our very first ever Saturday evening service um, since we started this church back in 1995. So, Uh, You are part of Making History. I'm really glad that you're able to free yourself up and be here with us tonight. Um, I want to preach a message that I might entitle, The Importance of Remembering. The Importance of Remembering. And the text comes from Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 and 19 through 24. I don't know if you guys can flash that up there on the screen for us, NIV. NIV. Okay, and I'm just going to read it for you, and follow along with me on the screen. Here's what it says. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, And put them down at the place where you stayed a night. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. And he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you in the future... When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are meant to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the twelve stones that, he had, that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. I want to skip back to verse 19. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. It's the word of God. Well, here we are again at Alliance Fellowship Church, and I just want to ask again, I know Pastor Jared this how many of you have started coming to church after we moved out to the high school, post June 2009. Okay, so a fair number of you. So this isn't any kind of a homecoming for you, but I think it's a good, it's a good experience for those who are relatively new. We are so glad you are a part of our church family. Uh, your being with us makes this congregation strong. But it's good sometimes to take a peek and look back in time at the origin of a thing that you're part of to realize that it had a story that started long before any of us really came together. I remember that there was a vision in the hearts of the leaders of this church years before I arrived here. And that's where I think Harvest Community Church got its start. And so it's really cool for me to be back in this room, in this building. Uh, it, I think those of us who were here from nearly the beginning, it's almost overwhelming the emotions that kind of come over you when you come in here. I mean, our church grew up in this building. And uh, I gave a lot of sermons in this room. In fact, I got married right about here. I think I was standing right around here when I married my wife, Jeannie, a lot of years ago. How many of you got married in this room? Just out of curiosity. Anybody else get married in this room? All right. Good, good, good. So this is a place that evokes for us, a number of us, a lot of memories. And that got me to think about memories in general about how important memories are and how, if we're not careful, we will have the wrong kind of relationship with our memories. And so the message tonight is about why it is so important to remember well. Now, maybe it's my age, uh, or maybe it's just the fact that we live in a world that is so noisy and overloaded with stimuli and data. I remember reading somewhere... I think it was the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, said that every two years we almost double the amount of data that humankind created for the first 10,000 years of our history. In other words, we are generating so many bits and bytes of data. Every tweet, every blog entry, every email, all the spam. All the digital photos you take and never look at, it's just creating so much data. We're doubling the amount of human data every two years. And so maybe it's the fact that um, there is just so much, but I feel like it's getting harder and harder to really hang on to memories. Do any of you feel that way? Like you're so busy, you're so overloaded, that memories are very scattered, very sketchy most of the time. And the irony is that today, because of technology, we have more means at our disposal for capturing the moments of our lives than ever before. I mean, how many of you have something that looks like this, and you're constantly pulling it out? Um, I am always taking pictures, and my daughter, Jordan, whenever I eat with her, she's always taking pictures of her food. I think it's it's cool, but it's kind of strange, too. Like you're taking a picture of a burrito. Um, what are you going to do with that? And we we put it in our journals, or we put it on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and we are generating so many captured moments. But even while the number of captured moments increases, the practice of sitting and reflecting on the moments of our lives is decreasing. In fact, I think we are becoming a much less reflective people, even while we have more things worth reflecting on. Maybe another way to say it is this, we love looking forward to everything, but we very rarely look backwards in a healthy and redemptive way. Don't you just love having something to look forward to? I I remember me and my best friend in, in high school, whenever there was a long stretch where there was no upcoming party or a road trip or anything, we would get so bummed. We'd just sit around on the weekends and we'd just like, there's nothing to look forward to. But before long, we would start reminiscing on some of the things we did in previous weekends. And the thing is, we like to look forward, but so much of the growth that happens in our lives happens when we look backward. The problem is, though, that for many of us, when we look backward, we don't look backwards in a way that builds up our hearts. We look backward with a very skewed lens, and looking backwards causes more harm than good for a lot of people. Do you know that the last time we had service in here was June 2009? And on that last service in this room, I preached on the same text. It was a very short message, but I want to come back to this text with a completely different message because I think I've learned a few things since we moved out. I've seen some things in my own heart and in this text that I want to draw out for us. This text records a very important day in the life of the Israelites. It was a very end of a very long journey for them. They had wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation of their forefathers had died during that wandering. And all the while, they were motivated by a promise God made to them that one day they would cross the Jordan River into something called the Promised Land. Well, that day had finally come, and everybody was totally stoked for this day. I mean, you know what it feels like? When you've been waiting for a day to come forever, and it's just right there around the corner, the day is finally on you, and the air is electric with anticipation. That long, long long-awaited day is here. You've probably had days like that, haven't you? Right? I mean, I remember my wedding day was like that. When it finally came, it was surreal. I could hardly believe that I was actually going to get married that day. And so on days like that, where is your thinking? Where are your eyes set? On those long-anticipated days, everything we think about is forward. We're, in, we're completely oriented towards the future, thinking about what's about to happen and what lies on the other side of that big big boundary marker in our lives. But in the midst of a forward-thinking moment, Joshua does a very interesting thing as the leader of the Israelites. He says, hey, I know we've... All just crossed the last straggler, maybe a little kid, maybe an older person who was a little slower getting there, got finally to the other side, and the whole nation now is on the other side in the promised land, and probably a cheer went up, and there was a very excited murmur among all the people, and then Joshua silences the crowd and calls for their attention, and what he says and does next is very strange. He says, hey, everybody, time out. I know you're really excited about finally being here, and you've heard all kinds of crazy rumors about what it's like on this side of the river. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, I'm going to ask you to take a time out, and we're going to do something really important before we move on to the next stage of our journey. And here's what he commands. He he says, one man probably a strong guy because you've got to pick up a good-sized rock. He says, go to the middle of the Jordan River, right back to where we just crossed through, and I want you to find a really nice-looking big stone from right in the middle, hoist it onto your shoulders, and bring it out to the other side. We're going to use those stones to stack them together into a memorial monument that will stand as a, a point of remembrance for us and for future generations. The idea is that before they rushed headlong into the next part of their future, it was important for them to pause and do something to acknowledge God and remember what had just happened at this moment. So I want to make two important observations about this memorial monument they made. And one is that remembering begins with acknowledging God. If you're taking notes, you can just jot that down. Remembering begins... With acknowledging God, and then the second observation is remembering the past builds our future faith. Okay, remembering our past builds our future faith. So I want to I want to talk about that first observation. Remembering begins with acknowledging God. But before I do that, do you guys have that video clips uh, queued up? And before you play it, just kind of hit pause for a second. I want to set it up. This is a um, this is a test. So I want you to pay close attention to these instructions, and no talking during the video. Just watch the video, and what I want you to focus on is how many times the people wearing white shirts pass the ball. And I'm going to ask you for total count at the end. All right, would you go ahead and roll the tape? Pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? Okay, pause the, the video for a second. How many did you count? Fifteen. All right, Fifteen. But, you can play it again. The correct answer is fifteen passes. But did you see the gorilla? Did you see the gorilla? Watch it again. He even beats his chest right in the middle of the screen. So just to show our hands, how many of you have seen that before? Cheaters. Okay, so thank you for not saying anything. How many of you saw that for the first time right here just now? And keep your hands up, did not see the gorilla the first time. Okay, so I totally didn't see the gorilla either and it freaked me out. I had to go back and play the actual video again to make sure they weren't putting in a gorilla later. Now, The reason I show that video is to make a point. All memory is selective. All memory is selective. I think it's common to believe that memories are like this. My mind is a camera. Whatever I see or hear or experience, I just record it objectively because memory is just a record of events that happened. Things that I saw, things that I heard. Isn't that the way we think about memory? But the problem is that at any given moment, there are too many things being said or done or shown to you that it would overload your brain and you would go into psychosis if you tried to take in everything that's around you. So it's inevitable that as you walk through life, you're only going to remember a select sliver of what you experience. By its very nature, all memory selective. And the point of that was when we asked you to focus on counting how many um, passes the people in white shirts made, especially because it adds to it a pride and com- competition uh, motif, a lot of us were highly motivated and we were watching only one thing, and a guy in a gorilla suit strolls through, not even ducking, does this, and you completely missed it. What's amazing, though, is now that you know, you will never be able to watch that video again and not see the gorilla. I ruined the video for the rest of your life. You will always see that gorilla because now you know to look for it. And, and what that illustrates is we see what we want to see. We, and another way of saying it is we see what we're looking for. And when you're focused, when, and every one of us, like it or not, we live life based on a theory about life, and about the world, and about other people, and about God. And because we have these theories running in our minds all the time, theories like, oh, no one's ever fair to me. Everybody else always gets a break. God loves everyone but me. Everybody else gets good luck. It's so easy for all of them. And we have these theories about the world that are always running like an operating system in our mind. It's like a filter. So that when you walk through life, what you look at, has to agree with your prevailing theory of the world. And that's why you only see the things that you believe matter or are true. You don't see everything, you only see some things. I mean, that's why I think our memories are not actually a record of events. They are a record of our point of view. You understand that our memories are not actually an objective record of anything except our particular bias or perspective or theory of life. And that's why what you remember will reveal everything to you about what you are looking to see in every moment of your life. So if you have a theory, for example, that everybody else has it easier than you, that's all you will ever see. You won't ever look at the people who are struggling and suffering a lot compared to you. Oh, but that's just people in that country or somewhere else. But all you ever see and remember are the people who just walk casually through life, effortlessly enjoying every good blessing. And you say, aha, you see, it's true. Everybody has an easier time than me. And that's what happens to all of us. We are selectively remembering things and recording them in this moment, and then they become the archive of the story of our life's experiences. That's why it's important that Joshua, as a spiritual leader of Israel, says to them, if we're not careful, then just because we're God's people doesn't make it automatic that we will acknowledge God in the moments and events of our lives. I wish it were true that every Christian would acknowledge God in all things, but we all know that's just simply not the case. Most of the time, we're not acknowledging God, we're just reciting the events, we're rehearsing the details of things we saw and heard. But there's a difference between seeing what happened and seeing what God has done. The question really then is, are you seeing God? And the answer will be, be, uh, be determined by this. Are you looking for him? Is your mind trained to look for God or do you only see him when he does things that agree with your theory of the world? When he breaks through your consciousness and does something you simply can't ignore. And these people were excited. They were full of anticipation. All they thought about were grapes the size of a man's head. And they were just hearing all these crazy rumors. They could not wait to take a plunge in the rivers of milk and honey. And what Joshua says to them is, time out. Before we go into the promised land, we have to pause to acknowledge that in this crazy moment we just experienced, It's more than just that a river opened up and we walked across. You can, I I suppose, describe it that way. Oh, dude, that was nuts. Did you see it? We're just standing there, and then these guys walked in with the ark, and then the river just stopped. And then the ground dried up, and we just walked across. And do you hear how what they're doing is they're reciting the story, but God's not included in that perspective. A river stopped. Things happened. Stuff just happens. But Joshua says to them, you cannot remember it that way. The thing we just lived through was not that a river stopped flowing and we walked across, but that our God stopped a river and delivered us to the other side so that we could experience the fulfillment of his promise. If you write God out of that story, then forever that memory will be recorded as a godless happenstance. As a series of random events that happen to you with nobody behind it, no invisible hand orchestrating anything. It's just stuff that happens. Blog about it. It's done. And that's why he builds this monument. I just got back from D.C. and we walked around the National Mall and saw all these monuments... And, you know, um, my wife is not a big history buff, so, I mean, I think part of the question in her heart was, what's the point of all these dumb old buildings? Like, a monument to this and a monument to that. I didn't know how to answer her, because I was so offended as a junior historian. I was like, what? how could you even ask something? You know, but, but I think that the question is very pragmatic. What is the point of setting up stones of remembrance? It's because... There are important events that shape the world that future generations were not part of, and when we see an object, we're forced to ask, what does this mean? And the story that is then told continues to shape future generations' picture of what the world is like and how things work. And he said, before we rush into our future, we need to make sure that at this moment, we acknowledge God. And I want you to think a little bit about the details of this memorial. Where did the stones come from? From the middle of the riverbed of Jordan. And a a couple hours before they built this monument, those stones were under dozens of feet of water. The fact that you could even see those stones and go in and reach down and grab them was a testament to something God did that boggles the mind how are you supposed to go into the middle of a river and grab boulders out of there and carry them out? It's because God himself stopped the water. And what he's saying is, in this moment, stop. Because right now, as you're rehearsing the story in your mind, you are making a memory. Your version of the story will forever be your memory. And later on, even if others show you videotape, you won't believe it, because to you, your version is the truth. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have a friend or maybe a spouse is like this. You're like, dude, your version of everything is so inaccurate. Why are you such a nut job in the way you remember things? When you tell it, it's like nothing. nobody else who was there remembers anything like what you're saying. You live in this crazy world where everything is interpreted by you. And that's why Joshua says, you got to stop right now because as you think about what just happened, do you know what you're doing? You are making a memory and you have the power to shape the memory so that it is a part of your your lore, your story, for the rest of your life. You have a choice to say that story will be true or will not. That it will be complete or not. That it will include God or be completely absent of any presence of God at all. And so if you flash verses 21 to twenty. 23 up there. Would you guys do that for me? Could you flash verses 21 through 23? He says, when your descendants ask you, what are these stones for? What do they mean, dad? It's a great occasion to tell him, this is what happened. And how you complete that sentence, how you answer your sons or your daughters, will reveal what kind of memory you made that day, especially if you're an eyewitness. Some parents, I'm sure, said, son, I don't know how to explain it. It was crazy. Our leaders took us to a river, and then the water stopped, and we walked across. And those sons and daughters will grow up thinking weird stuff just happens. Huh. I wonder if that kind of weird stuff will ever just happen to me. Other parents will tell them, that day, right at the appointed hour, God kept a promise that was 40 years in the making. He promised it, and when the day arrived, he did not fail to keep that promise. And he stopped the river, and we crossed, and God did this, and we understood that day that our God is mighty, and that we are to fear him. Those sons and daughters will grow up, including God, in their perspective of the life events that they experience and witness. Because what they're hearing is, God is not peripheral to our story. He is the central figure. He is saying to them, I am not just watching your life unfold, I am the one unfolding most of it for you. Now, that leads us to our second observation, that remembering our past builds future faith. Why does God do this? Why does he insist on memorials and monuments, and why does he insist on being the central figure of our memories? are these the pathetic rantings of an insecure God who's like, oh, I want you guys to totally think I'm important and I don't want you to just blow me off. I get so hurt when you guys... Do you think this is an insecure God saying, you have to pay attention to me? Of course it's not. God is honored when we remember him, but he's telling us to remember him for our own benefit. I think what God knew that the Israelites didn't quite understand yet is that there are still a lot of big trials ahead. That getting through the wilderness wandering and crossing the Jordan, it felt like the end of a journey, but in real sense, their journey was just beginning and the hardest part of it was still in front of them. And so he's saying to them, if you think you can let out a breath of relief and just coast from here, you've got it all wrong. The hardest tests you will ever face are still in your future. And because that's true, it's critically important that in this moment, as you just witnessed and experienced the miracle, you have to acknowledge me because as you include me in this memory, you will need that for later when you face another trial, another seemingly insurmountable obstacle, just like a river at full tide that people can't get across, and at that moment, you will remember that there was a day when God did what seemed impossible to us. That it wasn't like something just happened. God did it, and later, as you face your future crisis of hope, God's the memories of what God did will encourage you to realize that same God is standing with you in that moment as well. In verse 24, it says, He did all of this so that two things would happen. We would understand or see that He is powerful. In other words, He wanted to demonstrate His power, to show them, I'm not some figment of your imagination, but I actually have real power. Do you know, I think today in the church not just our church, in the church, I think this idea that God is powerful is at an all-time low. I really think we don't believe that God is powerful. And that is why we are so defeated by the things we face. That is why as a pastor, when it's incumbent on me to say to a parishioner, brother, sister, I know you feel like what you're going through is impossible, but God is able... He is powerful. And I find that less and less and less people take heart in that encouragement. Because the truth is, we're not really sure that's true. That this God of ours is actually big enough to face our stuff. Pastor Dave, you just don't understand. I know you can say that to some people because they pretty much have a good life. But you don't understand. My life stinks. My life has been a dirty toilet bowl for so long, I don't know if you understand who you're talking to. God is good for most people. But I haven't seen him show up in my neighborhood for a long time. And we start to believe that God isn't able to do things. And so he demonstrates his power clearly at seasons in our life because he wants us to know, it's good for us to know, that our God actually has real power, not just the power of a cheerleader to say, go, yay, I've never been a cheerleader. Do do they do something? I don't. But, you know, that's the power a cheerleader has is to encourage you, to egg you on, but they can't get on the field and play the game for the players. And sometimes we act like that's the only power God has is to say, come on, kiddo, pick up yourself by the bootstraps and and keep going. You can make it. We forget that God's power also extends into the real world. You're unemployed. You're wondering how you're going to make rent next month. Is God big enough to take care of you and your family? I mean, that's not spiritual stuff. That's financial stuff. That's real world stuff. Can God break out of the Bible and out of the church building into the problems and issues that mark your real world? And I believe more and more we're forgetting that God is powerful. But there's another part of it. He says, not only you wouldn't, that you would know my power, but that you would always fear the Lord. In other words, that you would acknowledge He has authority. And the two go hand in hand. We rarely acknowledge the authority of powerless beings. If my little baby told me she was the boss of me, I would laugh and play along for about 30 seconds, and then I'd put her in her place. We don't acknowledge authority when there's no power to back it up. And that's why for some of, some of us sitting in this room, you have scoffed at God's authority for a very long time because in your mind you're thinking, forget it. My life has been pretty good without God. Yeah, I go to church. I try not to kill anybody. I sometimes donate to a good cause. But I don't have to submit myself to God because look at my life. So far, I'm bulletproof. I've enjoyed everything. I've got good health. I've got And you're saying in your heart, you don't ever need to acknowledge God's authority because so far, you've made life work without Him. But there will be seasons where God will show you because it's good for you to know that you cannot blow off his authority forever and still be okay. It is good for us as human beings. It is good for us as Christians to live under the authority of God. Here's why that's important. Jericho was the next chapter of this book. In fact, it says that at Gilgal, they were parked just east of of where um, Jericho was. And do you remember the story of Jericho? They were about to face one of the most heavily fortified walls of the ancient world. Archaeologists tell us the wall was so thick, it's staggering to think it ever fell. If something supernatural had not happened... There's no way that just natural erosion over the centuries would have destroyed this city. By all rights, it should still be standing to this day because at places the walls were 36 feet thick. I mean, we're not talking about like a drywall and two by four. We're talking about stone 36 feet thick. And everyone in the ancient world heard of Jericho and its famed city walls and how arrogant and how secure the people who lived there were. And God was about to tell Israel, with his authority, here's my plan for beating that city. I want you all to march around in funny hats for seven cycles, seven laps around the city, and when you're all done, everyone shout! And then you priests blow your trumpets and watch while the city walls crumble. I mean, you got to know that that's a crazy thing. When God says that, I'm sure Joshua's like, can you just tell him, because I... I, can't, I don't want to be the guy standing in front of everyone saying, <clears throat> excuse me, is this thing on? Uh, we're going to walk around the city seven times. That's a serious amount of authority that God had. To say that and to have them do it is almost ridiculous. Where did the obedience come from? Where did the faith come from to do something that ridiculous in the face of a walled city? Where do they find the faith to believe that just maybe God's crazy enough that this wall will fall down if we do this? It came from remembering that there was a time when God stopped a river. Do you know that without a dam, rivers don't just stop flowing like that? Water doesn't just stack up like 20 feet high in a clear wall. That kind of stuff makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's not normal. And as they remembered it, as Joshua moved the monument and put it right there in the middle of the camp so that before they went to Jericho, that's the last thing they would see. Like NBA players maybe hitting that that little lucky spot on the doorframe on their way out to the court, they probably touched that memorial and said, hey, that reminds us that God's got our back. You know, I've seen people go through a crisis of faith in the midst of really hard times. I've sat with people as they agonized over how hard it was to hang on to God in the midst of trouble. But as I watch, in some cases, that suffering is so unnecessary. And here's how I believe it comes about that what they're having is not really a crisis of vision or imagination or hope. It's not that they don't have faith because they don't know how to imagine a better future. It's really their crisis of faith is a crisis of memory. Do you understand that? For so many of us, our crisis of faith is a crisis of memory. Please write that down if you're taking notes. People tell you, Just close your eyes and picture a better day. Imagine God coming through. But that's not where faith comes from. Faith is not conjured by a good imagination. Faith is built by looking backwards. Because when we look forward, we might hope to see God in the days ahead. But when we look back, we can certainly see God clearly in what he has done. I can't tell you exactly what God's going to do, but I can tell you exactly what God has already done, and that begins to build for me a picture of a consistent God who loves me, who is always looking out for me, who lets me be stretched just far enough without tearing. When I see this God clearly in my past, and then I turn back around to face front, I cannot make guaranteed promises about what will happen, but I can make a promise about who goes with me and what he is like. The faith I need to face the future comes largely from looking back and digging up the memories of God in my past. And that's why if we don't acknowledge God in the moments of our lives, then when we look back for faith, we will have no memories that include him. In all of our memories, we will tell the story of things people did and stuff that happened, but we won't tell the story of what God has done. And I see this in so many people's lives, that as they go through life, they don't acknowledge God, and as a result, all of their memories exclude God. So later, they fall into despair because their selective memory has built this wrong idea that God is absent in their life. And when they look, they say, but I don't see him. I wanted this to happen. It didn't happen. God wasn't there. He was there. If you look for him, you'll be amazed at how you see him even in the lowest moment of your life. The question was never whether God was there or not, but whether you sought him out or not. Those who look for God, even in the most barren place, will find him. That is the promise of Deuteronomy 4.29. If you search for me with all your heart, you will find me. That's God's word. Securing a promise that when we look for him in our lives, we will find him. And if we don't make that our practice, then every memory we set in stone in our hearts will not include God at the center. And when you need to be strong in faith, you will look backwards and all you'll see is a fatalistic story of your life as a cork bobbing on the oceans of this world. And you will describe the stuff that happened but you will wonder if God ever really acts. It is critical that we make it our practice to pause on a regular basis, but especially when major things are happening in our lives. Last night, I had one of the most treasured moments of my experience as a father when my son and daughter, Noah and Jordan, came back from Tuba City. They walked in as we were in the middle of a kind of a... a, a, important moment in our small group discussion. So we couldn't have this whole, hey, welcome home. So after everyone went home from small group, Jeannie and I, Noah and Jordan, we sat around our kitchen table and they just shared everything that happened. And I haven't seen that kind of display of real emotion or a sense that God was moving through their hearts. I was so moved. And what I realized was happening for our whole family yesterday around the kitchen table was that we were forming memories and my two oldest kids were solidifying memories and it wasn't just about a people in a desert, in a place, in a town, but it was about something God had profoundly done in their lives, in their youth group, in that town among them that week. My son is not an emotional guy, but I watched him bear his heart right out in the open. And I have never been so stirred as a dad as last night. That was one of the most powerful things I felt as a father. And what I realize happens when we do that is that for the rest of his life, he he will remember Tuba City 2013 as something the Lord did in his life. For the rest of his life, when he wonders if God does anything, if he changes hearts, if he touches people, that memory which includes and is in fact built around God will forever tell the story that says to him, yes, God works. He's real. He was there then. That same God is there with you now. How about you today? Maybe you're facing a trial. You're not sure how you're going to get past. You're wondering... Is there any light at the end of this dark tunnel? Because the problems are so outside of your control, you feel totally helpless. And the question is, when you look back over the story of your life, do you find your faith growing or shrinking? Does your history drive you towards God or away? Do you know that we are making our history even right now. Everything that happens, we have a choice to pause. And in this moment, in this thing that's happening, we can acknowledge what God is doing and forever record it as something which He has done in our lives. And if that becomes our practice, then I promise you that in the future when you face a trial, your faith will surge because you can see so clearly who he is and what he has done. Amen. Let's pray together. And and as we bow to pray, you know, I just want you to remember that Christian faith is not wishing real bad. Christian faith isn't about saying, well, someday if I'm a good person and I am nice to people, I'll get everything I want. What Christian faith is, is the hope that God will never change. That who He has always been, He will be for me. That the God who was faithful to David and Moses and Abraham and Jacob is the God who is walking with me. That the God who raised Jesus. From the grave will get me through my next grave. That when this pathetic life is said and done, and I finish never having experienced everything I wanted to, that this faithful God will carry me into the next life, and I will finally rest and receive my portion. Christian faith is the hope that God will be God in all times for all people. And that's not foolishness. I believe, believe that that's how God is. Maybe you've snuck by this far, building a life you're okay with, and not including God at all, at least not in any meaningful way. Well, I'm glad you've dodged the bullets this long. I'm glad it's worked out for you this far, but I know this about life. It will not play ball with us forever. It will not hold back the heartache, the tragedy, the pain and suffering. Those are as much a part of life as playoff games and movie debuts. No one escapes life's pain and hardship. And a day will come when you know you can no longer face your life and keep God at arm's length. Because that day is coming, be wise now and turn to Him. Don't wait until life has you by the throat to suddenly realize you need a God who is a stranger to you now. Come now to this God. I'm going to encourage you now to take the next few minutes And let's just pray together and let's respond to him in our own way. And then I'm going to hand it over to the praise team to ask them to lead us out of our service with some songs. But let's just go to God and together let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.